You know, we've been uh, talking about taking road trips over the summer, and I hope you've enjoyed your summer. And uh, we still got a trip. Me and Susan are going to be going for one in September over to uh, Yellowstone. We're, we're planning all that out. But, you know, we really related our faith journey to the road trips that we're on and, and how it all has shape to it. There are, there are moments when it's really cool. We call that topography, when it's hilly, and then there are times when it's valleys, there are times when it's uh, it's got snow on the top of the, the mountain caps, and then there are times when also it's in Death Valley type of experiences. And that our faith journey has topography. It, it has shape to it. it. It looks different at different times. But have you ever been on a road trip where it's gone all wrong? I mean, uh, have you ever been on one where you've planned it all out and it just didn't go the way that you thought it was going to go? I think that's the way most road trips go, especially if you've got little kids. It just doesn't, you end up with a flat tire someplace. Um, maybe you get stuck. I mean, you're, you're planning that you're going to go, uh, uh, I don't know what, skiing in Jackson Hole someplace and you find yourself in Chicago and the snow has got you just socked in where you can't get out and your whole vacation time transpires while you're stuck in some place you don't want to be. How about this one? This is a famous one that happens to a lot of road trips is that you accidentally slam the door on your kid's fingers in the station wagon. Any parent ever done that once or twice, three times? Yeah, I mean, a couple times. I remember we were on a trip and and, and Morgan's hand was in the trunk, and Susan was shutting the trunk, and she and didn't know that Morgan's hand was in there. And, but the thing was, is she was wondering why the trunk didn't shut, so she tried again. <laughs> it was a great road trip. It was a great vacation experience. Morgan remembers it to this day. I remember... I remember we were on a camping trip at Acadia National Forest, which was where we went as a family, and I was about six, and I, I, this is actually the picture uh, from it, and I, I remember hanging around the campfire and going on these family summer trips was a big highlight of the year for all of us. We were hanging around the campsite, and Pop was chopping some wood, and he would use like this, this axe head thing, anvil type of thing, and then he would... He would bang down on, on a large hammer, and it would split the wood, and it would all work really well. And, and I can remember he was, he was cutting wood, and I was walking around the campfire, and all of a sudden, as he's chopping, a piece of lead off of that, that block that he's using just breaks off and shoots across the campsite and hits me in the, in the head, in the, right here in my head. Um, all of a sudden, again, at the age of six, I have blood running down my face. I get knocked off my feet. Uh, Pop doesn't even know what's happened because, I mean, he didn't see all this transpire. And, and all of a sudden, I have this object embedded in my head, and we're up at a campground in Maine. So he puts an ice pack on me. I remember wiping the blood off of my face, and they decided, let's just go ahead with the camping trip. And everybody else is having a great time going fishing. <laughs> It was a different time. It, doesn't, it gets better than that. So, so they keep on camping. Everybody's camping. I have to stay home at the campsite with my mom, and it's not really a pleasant experience. Well, they, when we got home, they figured we should go to the doctors and see what they should do. And so back then, again, it was like early 60s, uh, they did an x-ray, and I've got this iron chip in my head, and, they and it was lead. They decided it would be better just to leave it there. 
So I have a, so to this day, I have a piece of lead embedded in my skull. It was about five years ago. I needed to get an MRI on my, on my head. And, and the, just before they did it, they said, listen, do you have any objects that, uh, you know, in your eyes or in your nasal passages, any flakes or anything that could get pulled through your skull while you're getting an MRI? I'm like, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I had this little chip in my head. Sure enough, they did an x-ray, and there's that chip right there. When they finally did the MRI, half of my brain is all fuzzy. Now, some of you are turning to your spouse and say, well, that just explains everything. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it totally ruined that road trip for me, and it was, a, it was a really one of those experiences. And, and our faith road trips don't always go the way that we wish they would. There are times when it gets a flat tire, and there are times when our faith gets stranded. We get stuck someplace. We just can't move out of that place for some reason. Or maybe there's that, that trip that you had that you did all the planning for, and you were excited about it, and it was going to be awesome, and you had the photos beforehand, and you have it all laid out, your itinerary is just perfect. And then you actually go on the trip, and it really wasn't that great. You thought it was going to be unabashed romance on the beaches of wherever you went. And you and your husband fought the whole time. Or maybe one of your kids got a temperature and, and was sick the whole time you were there. Or maybe the campsite or the, the hotel that you stayed at at the location just wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. And then you come home from the trip and you've put out all this money and there's this lingering disappointment over the trip that you just had and the experience you had. Sometimes that, that is exactly what happens in our faith journey. John the Baptist had a trip just like that. He went on a road trip with God. Now they call him John the Baptist, if you're not familiar, was, his job was to kind of prepare the way for Jesus. I mean, that was his job, was to get people ready. And part of that getting ready is kind of inner reflection. And, and in, in the baptism process, what it was kind of like, hey, listen, I want to clean my life so that I can be ready for whatever God wants to do next in my life. So he got called John the Baptist. But John, John was on a trip with God. I mean, listen to how good this trip is going to sound. First of all, he's the older cousin of Jesus. You know, you got to figure, you know, you're going to get free tickets to someplace if you're the older cousin of Jesus. I mean, free flights, this is going to go pretty good. His faith journey was well planned out, so much so that an angel had appeared to his father and even told him what to name John and also the journey, the map, the itinerary for John's life was being presented before he was even born. Now, let's even go even further than that, because in the Old Testament, it actually talks about this guy, John. It doesn't call him John, but it tells us what kind of journey this man, John, is going to go on. In Luke 1, 17, we're told about John, that he will go before Jesus in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's like, wow, John's life is mapped out. And you may have a well-mapped out life as well. But I mean, he's got pedigree into this. He's, he's related to the Savior. 
He's connected to the story. His life has been foretold, and the impact that he's going to have is magnificent. You can just imagine what John's got going on in his head. And John was a real outdoorsman. He lived in the wilderness. He had a diet of locusts and honey, and he, and he wore camel skins. People would journey to hear him speak about the kingdom of God, and he'd baptize them to get them ready for the event which was about to take place. And here's the thing. John faithfully walked out the trip that God had laid for him. We have really no, you know, we, we don't hear too much about his dysfunctions. We don't hear anything really bad that he had to struggle with. John actually executed the plan. So he's got this incredible plan laid out before him, and he begins to faithfully execute it. He points everyone to Jesus. He even encouraged the people that started following him to stop following him when Jesus started his ministry. So he's got it all going on. He was walking the faith journey out just as it was planned. He had a great reputation. One of the ways that you can find out you're doing a good job in ministry is that the religious people hated him, but the God-seekers listened to him. That's usually a really good sign, is that when you get people who don't know God are drawn to you, and people that say that they know God really don't like your methodology. He was exactly in that place. And then to take it even further, because I want you to see John is doing a great job. You know, we can talk next week about what happens when the journey goes awry because of something that we've done, but that's not the case here with John. John's doing a great job, even so much so you should hear what Jesus thinks about his big cousin. And he doesn't just think of him as a cousin. He speaks as his Lord and as his God. Listen to what Jesus thinks about John. In Luke 7, 24, and Jesus speaking to the crowds concerning John, he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's court. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. But even more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, this is Jesus talking about John, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Wow. I mean, this is like uh, the Clemson quarterback. That young guy that they got is going to be a freshman this year. I mean, super high rated coming out of high school. They said that in his senior year in high school, he could probably play in Division I football right now. He's got that long hair, blonde hair. You'll see him playing. I forget what it is. Anybody want to throw out his name? Clemson France, here's your moment. With Trevor Lawrence, there we go. Wow. <laughs> I was waiting to hear like some deep masculine voice, but we got a cool person over there that knows exactly, Trevor Lawrence. And he's like the golden child. We're expecting nothing but amazement to come out of this player. And this is exactly how John is being set up. Is that this, Jesus says he's amazing. He's my cousin. He's been foretold. Wow, can you just see how John's faith journey is? Special calling from God. The cousin of Jesus, respected and feared, greatest man that Jesus ever knew. 
Now, in, in taking a road trip, that's equivalent to flying first class, the best hotels, spectacular views from your room, it, and you look at all that and add it together, this trip is going to be awesome. I mean, if you ever said that, when you had a trip all planned out and vacation ready to go, it's going to be awesome. John must have known that. And I think he was fully aware of the part that he was playing. The part and the success created an expectation of how this journey should go. And I can only imagine how he thought his life should go. But it's not how it went at all. Because out of nowhere, everything in a moment changed for John's journey. Out of nowhere, the expectation that he had in his heart about how his life was going to be lived out, how he was going to get old, how he was going to have a wife and kids, all that, how God was going to move uh, in his ministry, all of that changed in just a moment. One day, Herod, the leader of Israel at the time, arrested John. Matthew 14, 3 tells us that Herod seized John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to the king, it is not lawful for you to have her. So he's, he's, Herod's taken his brother's wife and is, is now her mistress, or he, she's his mistress. And though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. I mean, because everybody knew John was special. John had a gift. John was unique. John had God on his side. So much so that Herod wouldn't even touch him. But John didn't see this flat tire coming. He didn't see this airport was about to get stuck with a lot of snow and he was journey was going to change. He had prepared for the journey, and he had faithfully executed the plan, but now John is in prison, and he's beginning to question the journey. John is beginning to see that his expectations may not get fulfilled. And I think this is what we need to learn from John, is that adversity begins to challenge your expectations particularly your expectations in God. Adversity has a way of doing that. John, in a moment of disappointment, asks, and particularly asks Jesus, should I be looking for a new plan or a new person to follow? Because this doesn't seem to be going the way that I think it should be going. In Luke 7, 19, we actually have the dialogue recorded. And John, while in prison, calling his two disciples to himself, sent them to the Lord and asking, and I want you to hear, I want you to hear the, maybe the resignation. I want you to definitely hear the disappointment in his voice, that this isn't working out the way that I thought it was going to work out. He sends his disciples and says, hey, are you the one that is to come, or should we be looking for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
regardless of all the familiarity and the family relationships, regardless of the announcement of the angels in the Old Testament prophecies about his life, for a moment, John does not seem to be sure. Now, I want to just give you some hope in the middle of this moment. Because, let me remind you, who was the greatest man that Jesus said he had ever known to be born of a woman? John. Apparently, you can be the greatest man Jesus has ever known and question whether or not Jesus is the right person for you. And that's okay. Jesus doesn't say, oh, John sent you, huh? John's doubting whether or not little cousin is really the Messiah. John's really questioning the whole plan. John's questioning his role in the Old Testament prophecies. Oh, maybe he isn't as good as after all. No, he doesn't change his opinion about John at all. And I want you to know, if you're in a place with God right now where the journey hasn't gone where you thought it was going to go, and now it seems to be stuck someplace in a little airport in the middle of Idaho, and your vacation with God seems to be ending, I want you to know that happens to good and faithful men and women of God. And that everybody has a time when they wonder about the expectations of God. And they wonder about, I really didn't think this was going to pan out this way. I thought it was going to turn out different in my life or what God was going to do. Have you ever had that moment of not being sure? I have had that moment, I don't know, I would say weekly, but there have been times when I've really had questions like, am I really the right guy? Should I quit? Because, you know, maybe somebody better would keep this building from flooding. Uh, maybe this church would be larger if I didn't have a piece of lead stuck in my head and have half a fuzzy brain. Maybe, you know, you know if, if God was really moving in me with the power of the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't struggle with, with the things that I struggle with. Maybe I'm not really the real deal. Maybe, you know, maybe this isn't. And I think all of us have those questions when the, when the divorce papers are served to us. When we lose our job. When all of a sudden your doctor tells you that you have an unidentified spot that we may have to keep an eye on. We need to biopsy and have it removed because we don't know exactly what it is. And all of a sudden you begin to wonder about what's going on in your life. Maybe it doesn't change your perspective on the existence of God, but it did challenge your expectations for his plan for your life. And I think many people live their lives faced with this, this disappointment. It's like being stuck in an airport. Airports are not designed to put you up overnight. Airports are not designed to feed you while you're waiting for the snow to melt or the tarmac to be cleared. There are always places of discomfort and anxiety and, and now you you're, have angst with the other passengers. You see your trip beginning to dissolve in front of you and your vacation time disappeared and all the money that you spent, regardless if you got trip insurance or not, nothing covers stuff like that. And the airport is never really designed for a place for you to live. And so is disappointment. It's never a place where you can actually live disappointed 
It doesn't have the right kind of furniture. It doesn't have the right accoutrements. It can't sustain your life. But so many of us are living our lives out with disappointment. We're living life in an airport, never arriving to where we think we should be getting with our lives, never having settled where we're going. We're dealt with the disappointment. Remember, John isn't asking Jesus to fix his problems. There's no place in there where it says, Jesus, get me the heck out of here. I would have asked that. John is a little surprised at the direction his life is taking. I don't think John is looking for a problem-free life. He just wants to know, am I on the right journey? Okay, if life has got to be hard, and I get that, and I think John was mature enough to know that even life with God can sometimes be difficult, but he was like, am I on the right journey? I mean, is this really how you want my life to go, God? I, I need to know that. I need you to give me a sign. Tell me something. God, I just need to know that if you are my best hope and if you're still with me. So John's disciples go to Jesus. They ask him, are you the one or should we expect another? Now, I don't want you to miss this because it's, it's right in the scriptures that Jesus is about to do something and it's, it's really all for John. It says in Luke 7, 22, it says, in that hour, which could have been translated in that moment, Jesus healed many people of their diseases and their plagues and their evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. Okay, so he's talking to the disciples of John. So here's what he does. He hears this question asked, are you the one or should we expect another? And he goes, hold on. I want you to follow me for a little bit. Does a miracle, does a miracle, does a miracle, does a miracle. And then in the text, it sounds like he turns back to them and he says, and now he answers them and says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Let's go back and tell them. Now, what drops into my brain right now, even the fuzzy half of it, it may be something that you're thinking, is that if you saw that stuff, you'd believe also, wouldn't you? But guess who didn't see that stuff? John. John didn't see that stuff. Jesus didn't parade a bunch of people outside John's cell and say, listen, watch John, can you see? Okay, all right, kabang, kabang, kaboom, kaboom. You know, whoop, 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 whatever. John didn't see any of it. He had to rely on the testimony that God was doing something. And sometimes, you know, all you got is the testimony of God's word. That he healed, that he set free, that he made the blind see. Because maybe you're in a place where you're not seeing any of it. And God's just like, listen, I need you to trust the testimony I'm at work, even though you don't see it. Wow. I'm sure those guys ran back and said, he's the one, we saw it. And John was probably like, tell me what you guys saw. Man, I wish I could have seen it. But from where I'm sitting right now, all I'm seeing is five bars, an iron door, 
and cement walls. So they try to encourage him, but Jesus sends him back with this news. But I, John, um, Jesus adds one more statement to tell the disciples that I, I want you to make sure John hears this last statement that I am about to say. And here's the statement he sends. With the miracles, he sends this statement as well. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's like, wow, what an interesting tag on all those miracles. He says, go back and tell John, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And the key word there is the word offended. And in the original language, it's skandizolo. It's where we get the word scandalized. He sends them back and says, and tell John, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Not just by bad things happening. Not just by the mistakes that we make. Jesus says, go back and tell him that you are blessed when you are not scandalized by the way I do things. And I'm willing to bet that if you're here today and you're disappointed with God, that, that maybe you have allowed the scandal, not of your events, not of the adversities, but you've just been scandalized by God. Why does he let this happen? I mean, there isn't a human being here that's living any life of any kind of meaning who hasn't asked that scandalous question before. I mean, if God is good, why does evil happen? If God's at work in my life, why is this going on? If, if God really loves his church, then why does it flood? And, and if, if, if I'm a child of God and he died for my sins and, and that God can do miracles, well, why do I got to get a biopsy? Why do I got to deal with adversity in my life? And he, he says, let's go back and tell John, John, you're about... The, the challenge for your heart right now is whether or not you're being scandalized, not by Herod, but by me. Because you're really wondering, how can I be good and still love you the way that I love you? Blessed is the one who is not scandalized when the journey takes an unexpected turn. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the displeasure and turns away from God. Blessed. It's like God's committed himself in promise to those of us who will, who will push back on the scandal of adversity, the scandal of compromise, and even the scandal of God himself. And I know so many of you, and I've known some of you very long. And I know how the journey of your lives has turned and you feel scandalized by God. And if it wasn't possible, Jesus would have said or rebuked John. But he says, blessed when you are not scandalized by the way I do things that are different than the way that you think they should be done. Because they do have the power to scandalize. Tell John the right expectation is that I am continuing his journey and though the difficulties are real, so should your expectations of me be. Don't give up, and the blessing is coming. 
Don't let your faith be scandalized by the events of your journey. God is in control. And I've had a lot of scandalous events happen. And most of my scandalous events have been my own fault. The things that have offended me have been the things I've done to myself for the most part. But God says there are times when the way that he does things can offend you. And he wants us to remember that he's in control and that God will finish the good work that he has begun in you. So let's just talk about your real-time moment for now. For the moment, things may not have turned out the way that you think they should have. But do what John does. Reaffirm your hope in God. Ask God to renew the vision for your life. God, help me see it. And if you don't help me see the vision for my life, at least, at least help me know that you're with me, that you're still my best option, that you're still my best expectation. And, and, and John says, God, take my journey because I'm having a hard time living this one by myself. And that's why Paul said, it is no longer I who lives, but now Christ who lives within me. I have taken my journey and I've turned my journey with all of its disappointments over to God. Now, I would think if I was God, it sucks that we only get the journey after we're disappointed with it. But that's okay with God. You know, it's totally okay with God that you did it on your own for a while and now it hasn't worked out really well and now your life sucks. And uh, you're like, okay, God, I'm ready to give you my life. And God says, that's okay. I want your life anytime I can get it. Anytime you'll turn your journey over to me, I want to be a part of that journey, and I'll finish that journey for you. See, remember, even Jesus' journey became overwhelming. I mean, we, we want a scandalous-proof faith. There is none. There is no faith system on the earth that doesn't scandalize us in some fashion or another after being placed on the cross for a moment. When sin is laid upon the life of Christ, he begins to lose the clarity of perception, and in that moment, the crisis of the sins of the world being laid upon him, what does he do? He does what John does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you the one that we were expecting, or should we expect someone else? Even the Son of God goes into a moment when that clarity that, that overwhelming disappointment or whatever it is comes over our lives and we just don't know in the moment where the journey's going. But like John, he goes to God and gives God his journey. And just before he dies, he continues the journey by turning it over to the Father and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. This journey stinks. This journey's painful. I'm not even sure where it's going. And there's a scandal of God on my life. I don't understand what you're doing, but, but here's all I can do in this moment, is into your hands, I give my journey. I turn my life over to you. I don't know what you're doing. And Jesus said that some of the greatest men in history, some of the most faithful women in history he's ever known, have been scandalized in their faith journey with God. And I say that is don't be shocked. 
Don't think and isolate yourself to think it's just you and your family. It's just you. It's like you're just having problems because you're screwed up or you're doing it the wrong way. Or God doesn't love you as much as the next person. That this has occurred to you or it's happening in your life because God doesn't care about you or he's left you. I always thought this thing was sappy, but as we move in towards expressions, this thing that was written back in the 1990s talks about the journey, how it changes perspectives in our lives. And you've, you probably have this hanging up in your wall someplace. But I think it makes most sense and is most meaningful now. One night I had a dream, this woman wrote. I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord and across the sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand I noticed that many times along the path of my life there was only one set of footprints. I also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in my life. And this really bothered me. And if I could insert, this scandalized me. And I asked God about this and questioned him. Lord, you have said that once I decided to follow you, that you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, you seemed to leave me. In comes the scandal. And the Lord replied, my precious child, John, Sue, Paul, whatever your name may be, I love you and I would never, never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. When your journey ended, I took over your journey for you. You know, I would like to be able to tell you that when everybody got back to John, they told John that John was oh, so excited and just waited a matter of time. The governor gave a reprieve. The door opened and out walks John. He falls on his knees, a free man, blessed by God. But just days later, John was delivered to Herod and his head was cut off and his life came to an end. John the Baptist never walked out of that prison, but he did leave that prison fully alive. And his expectations were finally met. See, the fights for what you do with your expectations now, in heaven they're fulfilled. The battle of all heaven and hell is over your expectations and your disappointments right now. This is the valley of the shadow of death and you may not even be sick. This is the place 
where there is a war being fought for your expectations and your scandals and your disappointments with God and what you think your life should be. And this is the time when we just, no matter whether you're flying first class or you're in the back seat of a Greyhound bus, that we just renew our faith and confidence of God that he who began a good work and every one of us will be faithful to complete that work. Father, as we enter into this moment, the bars may be real, the scandal may be palpable, but Lord God, you say to us, do not be offended and you will experience my blessing. Though when your hour is darkest, I will carry you. When you come to the end of your journey and your expectations have not been met and you're faced with disappointment, I will carry you. God is saying to us, I got it. I got it. Trust me. You were not wrong to put your hope in me decades ago. Don't bother looking for another because I'm the one. Father, we come into your presence and into this moment and we express not our satisfaction with life, not our satisfaction with the journey, not our satisfaction of where we are at this particular moment and how everything's worked out. No, we transcend that. And we reset our expectations and our hopes upon you. And whether we walk out of this moment on our feet or we're carried out fully alive, we renew our hope and our trust in you, God. So let me encourage you as we take the bread and the cup to remind us of the works of God. When you take that bread and it touches your lips and that, the, the taste of that fruit of the, of the vine, God is reminding you that your expectations will be fulfilled through the bro broken body of Jesus and his powerful resurrection. He is still your best hope. We welcome you into his presence.